Good morning, church. It's good to be with you in the house of the Lord uh, today. Our second reading comes from the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, I will read verses 15 through 26. You'll find the text of that uh, there in your bulletins. Hear the word of God. After this, we got ready and left for Jerusalem. Some of the followers of Jesus from Caesarea went with us. These followers took us to the home of Nansen, a man from Cyprus, who was one of the first people to be a follower of Jesus. They took us to his home so that we could stay with him. The brothers and sisters in Jerusalem were very happy to see us. The next day, Paul went to visit with James, and all the elders were there. After greeting them, Paul told them, point by point, all that God had used him to do among the non-Jewish people. When the leaders heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, Brother, you can see that thousands of Jews have become believers But they think it is very important to obey the law of Moses. They have been told that you teach the Jews who live in non-Jewish regions to stop following the law of Moses. They have heard that you tell them not to circumcise their sons or to follow our other customs. What should we do? The Jewish believers here will learn that you have come, so we will tell you what to do. Four of our men have made a vow to God. Take these men with you and share in their cleansing ceremonies. Pay their expenses so that they can shave their heads. This will prove to everyone that the things they have heard about you are not true. They will see that you obey the law of Moses in your own life. In regard to the non-Jewish believers, we have already sent a letter to them saying what we think they should do. Don't eat food that has been given to idols. Don't eat meat from animals that have been strangled or any meat that still has the blood in it. Don't be involved in sexual sin. So Paul took the four men with him. The next day he shared in their cleansing ceremony. Then he went to the temple and announced the time when the days of cleansing ceremony would be finished, on the last day an offering would be given for each of the men. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, we ask for your presence and for your help here this morning. We thank you for uh, the privilege and the calling on our lives to uh, gather here uh, as believers. We thank you that we have responded to that call. We thank you for uh, the comfort and the safety of where we meet this day. We do uh, pray for those who do not gather in safety this day. We pray uh, your hand of protection upon them. We pray uh, your presence with them even in times of trial. Lord, I pray that we would not be comfortable in Um, in our religious practice, but that we would see it as holy worship to you and as commanded by your word. I pray that we wouldn't take it for granted and that we wouldn't neglect the gathering of the saints. Lord, I pray that as we gather here that we might come with an expectation that we are going to meet you and that we're going to hear from you and that you will be hearing from us. Lord, you are a God who speaks to his people 
We're not sure why, but you do. And it is in your nature to speak to your people. It's in your nature to want to have a relationship with your people. And you are a God who listens to your people. And so you command us to pray. You command us to be bothering you with our concerns and with our anxieties. And so I pray that as we gather here and worship today, we might worship you in spirit and in truth, that your Holy Spirit might be hovering over this room, uh, binding each one of us uh, together, having gathered from many quarters, but one people here in this space. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would also be alive and active in us individually, opening our ears to your word, convicting us of sin, empowering us uh, to be your followers and to be sanctified. Again, Lord, we thank you uh, for calling us here this morning and uh, we, we look forward to the time that we're going to spend together with you. May you be honored and glorified and may we be blessed. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as... Um, Sometimes happens, uh, on Monday morning, you know, I put together uh, the readings for the coming week and, uh, looking at the text, I have an estimation of what the sermon is going to be about. And then other times during the course of the week, uh, the spirit leads in a different direction. And so the title of this sermon is not the title for the sermon that you're going to hear. I don't have a title for this sermon. You can make up the title. Uh, At the end, you can tell me what this sermon was. Uh, We may come back to uh, that subject uh, uh, in in this uh, passage that we read from the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, Paul, who of course is is a minister of the gospel, who is all about uh, grace and who's all about uh, salvation uh, by grace and not by works, uh, still is instructing the church uh, with regard to the law. And so sometimes as Christians we are perplexed about uh, where we stand with regard to the law uh, and it's an important subject for Christians to be considering. We're not really going to consider that this morning. You're free to consider it on your own time, but uh, we won't be considering it here. What I wanted to talk uh, about this morning is really uh, about Christian history or about divine uh, history. The Acts of the Apostles is, of course, a history. It's it's a history uh, text, and we, uh, we can think about why is it that Scripture includes histories. Now, some of us like history. I happen to like history. I think of history as basically gossip. You know, it's fun to hear gossip, but it's gossip about things that happened uh, a long while ago. Uh, the other thing which happens in history is, is that there are connections, uh, that are made between, uh, events and, and, and we, uh, identify causality for how it is that we got here. It's a way, history is a way that we trace how we got to where we are today. Some of you are interested in history. I happen to be, uh, interested in history. Last month I was, uh, in my hometown in Missouri. We had gone there to, uh, uh, do a memorial service for my mother who had passed last year. And, you know, of course, always part of funerals and memorial services are a kind of review of the life of the, of the beloved. You know, and in funerals, we often are trying to sum up a life, uh, which is an extraordinary thing, uh, to have to do. And so, you know, we were watching slides of, uh, you know, of, of pictures of my mother's life and, uh, and reflecting on on her on her history 
Also, while I was out there, I gave a, a lecture uh, in the in the public library about uh, a painter who's connected uh, with that town, who had done a mural in that town in 1939, and was tracing out uh, the biography of of this rather unknown individual and and his place within the larger art history of of the United States. So history is something that is is on my mind. Um, it's also uh, in scripture. And I think it's appropriate for us to ask the question, why is so much of Scripture historical? Why is so much of it an account of things that have happened in the past? I mean, so keep in mind that this, the Bible is our guidebook for worship. It's our guidebook for our Christian life. Scripture tells us uh, that everything that's contained in the Bible is put there for our help and for our building up. And so in the mind of God, God intended that we would have this history, these historical accounts, these reliable, factual, detailed accounts of things that happened 2,000 years ago. Why? I mean, isn't our relationship with God just about worshiping Him and praising His name? Uh, isn't preaching just about exhortation or about encouragement? Don't we just need the Bible to give us laws and instruction about how we are living? Why is it that we also need history? Why is there biblical history? And since there is biblical history, large swaths of Scripture are historical, and we as followers of Christ are to be shaped by the Bible, what place should divine history have in our individual lives? Okay? Partly what we have going on in this letter is a history of the church corporately, by the way, I'm working on my dissertation currently, and part of my dissertation will be a fresh history of this congregation. That's a, that's a way of thinking about the congregation corporately, what's going on, uh, in, in the whole congregation related to the neighborhood and related to the nation. But what about us individually? Okay? What place does divine history have in your life? Do you think about your history? In light of God's plan. Are you thinking about your history, the events that have happened in your life, in light of what we call providence? Okay, scripture teaches that the events that occur in our lives and in this world are ordained and governed by God himself. Do you reflect on that? Do you ever look back on your life and look at these different events and say, you know, I saw God's hand there, I saw God's hand there, I see God's leading there. Do you reflect on that and think about that and wonder about that? I would encourage you to. We're going to spend some time at the end of, uh, at the end of this sermon reflecting individually on where we have seen God's hand in our lives. I would like to suggest to you that it is a worship imperative, that it is central to the Christian life to be periodically reflecting on our individual lives in terms of what God is doing and what God has been uh, showing up in our lives to do. 
All right? So that's where we're going. We'll see if we get there. I want to take a little detour here, and I'm sorry if this gets rather professorial, but it's going to. So I want to talk about theories of history. Okay? There's history, and then there's what they call the theory of history. The historiography, it's called. And I want to just lift up three of them, which have been important in the world that we live in, uh, and talk about them uh, in, in light of our lives. The, the first uh, theory of history that has impinged on us is was brought to us by the Greeks. Okay, the ancient Greeks, and those of you who've read the Greek uh, uh, mythological stories and the legends, uh, they they uh, give, give uh, a life to this history. The Greeks believed that the universe was eternal. That it wasn't made, it just always was here, and that it would always be here. Alright? And so, the, the universe, this uncreated, eternal universe is, is a backdrop for human history, but human history is a cycle. It's an endless return of the same thing. You will literally do the same thing again at some time in the future. Now, you don't remember it. It's not reincarnation, okay? But they have this idea that all of the events in human history simply repeat themselves uh, again. There's the eternal return of the same thing. Now, what are the consequences of that view of history? Well, one is, is that there is no redemption from the troubles of this life. If your eyes are open, if you are moderately intelligent, you know that your life and the life in this world is not the way that it should be. You have an understanding that, you know, things aren't where they should be. And so deep in the human heart is this desire for restoration and for redemption, individually in our lives, but also in the world in general. In the Greek view of history, there is no redemption. There's simply an eternal return of the same thing that is. Now, what's the appropriate or the most intelligent response to that kind of universe? Well, it would be stoical resignation. This is the way it is. Get used to it. Stop fussing about it. Okay? And there's a certain wisdom in, in that. Okay? Stop fussing about things you can't change. The world is doing this, and it's always done this, and it's going to do it again, and you fussing about it's not going to make any difference. Okay? So there's there's no redemption in the Greek view of history. The history is cyclical, the universe is eternal and uncreated, and the best response to this is to just live for the day and be resigned to your fate. Another view of history, which is very prominent in, in our time right now, is the progressive or the Marxist view of history. I say Marxist because uh, Karl Marx explicitly developed this. He borrows it, of course, from Hegel and from Fichte before him. But in the Marxist and progressive view of history, again, the universe is uncreated. It simply is here. Matter is all that there is. But history is progressive. It's not cyclical. History is always moving from where it is now to someplace that's that's better. As history progresses, it goes from bad to better, from from good to best. Okay. Progress in the Marxist view of history is built in 
to the nature of the universe. Tomorrow will always be better or more valuable than today. The future is always glorious, which is why you see in Soviet art, you know, all of those heroic workers marching off into the, into the sun. It's like an image of the future. Okay, this is, this is the image that they have of, of their hope in the future. So for them, for the Marxist, redemption lies in the future. The future is always going to be better than where we are now. Where we are now, things are messed up. Everybody can look around. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. But inevitably, in the future, this glorious proletariat state will come and everything will be well. Everything's going to finally be good. All right, so this is this is a, a progressive view of history. You know, there, are, there are different versions of this, but the Marxists sort of developed this in the most uh, uh, poignant way uh, uh, in the 19th and in the 20th century. So what's the best response to a progressive or to a Marxist view of history? Well, it would be a hopeful destruction of today so that you can get to tomorrow as soon as possible. If tomorrow is always better than today, there's no need to even keep today, which is why the Marxists feel entirely free to rewrite history. The past doesn't matter. What's important is what lies ahead of us, not what lies in the past. The values are always increasing. Tomorrow is always better than today. So as we go uh, in reverse, everything was worse in the past. And so why would we even dwell on that? We're going to simply blow all of that up and move forward into our glorious future. Now, there are certain things that are right about Marxism. I want to lift up two because I think they're very important. So, because Marxism is progressive, it's important to realize that progress is a value judgment. Progress is a value judgment. If you say that I have progressed, in, uh, it means that you've moved closer to your goals. You've gone from good to better. You've gone from bad to good. Progress is always making a value judgment. And if you believe in progress, you believe that there is there are better things and worse things. And I think that's important to believe. I think it's important to recognize that all things are not equally good. Now, the postmodern view, which would be a, a post-Marxist view also, is that, you know, you can't make any value judgments between things. But the Marxist view is, no, some things are good, some things are bad, and the good is always going to be there in the future. So I think that's important. I think it's important for us uh, to recognize that some things are better and some things are worse. Another thing which I think is right in Marxism is that it has a concern for the poor and for the lowly. There is a high value placed upon people that in the ordinary system of values are undervalued. There's a recognition of the importance of, uh, uh, of the laboring classes. And I think that's, that's an important uh, thing and I think that's a true thing. So those are a couple of things that are right uh, in, in the Marxist view. But there are some things that are wrong in it that I'd like to point out. One thing that's wrong with it is that it's simply empirically false. It is simply empirically not the case that things have always gotten better. 
Okay, There are times when things are good and there are times when things are bad. And I know that amongst progressives in the 19th century uh, and in the early 20th century, World War II happened and they, they, and, and, and they were flabbergasted. How could these horrible things happen amongst civilized people? You know, we Europeans are the peak of civilization and look what we've done to ourselves here in Europe. And so all of this suggestion that somehow humankind is always progressing to a glorious future all of a sudden looks really ridiculous when you see the terror of the Second World War. And then after the Second World War, of course, then you have the beginning of the Stalinist state with the killing of more people than the Nazis managed to kill. You have, you have the, uh, 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 the, the terror, uh, in, in China as well, in the, in the Cultural Revolution. Tens of millions of people killed. And you think, well, where's the progress? How is this better? How are we moving towards some future? And I think it is simply empirically not the case that the future is better than the past. Uh, of course, the, the famous boast is, who was this? The, one of the premiers of the Soviet Union, uh, standing there, beating his shoe on the, on the podium at the UN, saying to the West, we will bury you. This is the 1950s. Who is the guy? Somebody tell me the name. Khrushchev. Okay, so Khrushchev. He's beating his shoe. I mean, it's, but he believed this. Because he believed that the, that it was inevitable, that the forces of history were inevitable. Capitalist West represents the past. Marxist Soviet Union represents the future. Well naturally, if that's the future, if it's inevitable that just a force of nature is gonna take you in that direction, then yeah, the Soviet Union would be ones who are doing our, who are gonna be performing our funerals. Well, unfortunately he wasn't around to see what happened in 1991. And so, you know, any prophet whose prophecy doesn't come true is a false prophet. And let me say that Marx is a false prophet. Okay? He is a prophet of a false religion. That's one thing. It's just empirically false. The other thing that's false about Marxism is that it loves humanity but doesn't love humans. It loves the workers, it loves the proletariat, but it's willing to murder tens of millions of people to accomplish its goals for humanity. You cannot say that you love humanity if you're willing to kill this individual for humanity. And which is what they have done over and over and over again. Now, all of that behavior on their part is implicit in their understanding of history. That the past is always worse than the future. That the future is always going to be better than today. With that view of history, there's no reason to cling to today or to preserve the past or to honor uh, to honor the past. So now, there was a theological version of this uh, progressive understanding of history. It was popular uh, during uh, the, the first half of the 20th century. There are still remnants of it in the mainline churches today. Uh, it's called post-millennialism. I think uh, uh, those of you who think about eschatological things are probably pre-millennialists. So a post-millennialist is a person who believes that Jesus comes at the end of the millennium. Okay, The millennium is the glorious reign uh, when everything is right. And so in the post-millennial view, the church is God's uh, instrument on earth. 
The church is the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is ever expanding and is ever growing. And more and more the world is coming under the control of the church and, and of the bureaucracies of the church. And it's going to get so good one day that Jesus will finally come back. Finally, everyone will be converted. Finally, every problem will be solved. Okay? This was the version of early 20th century progressive Christianity. It's called post-millennialism. And so there was a lot of hope in that. There was a lot of institutional and bureaucratic drive uh, in that to solve all of the problems of the world. That the church was going to solve the problems of the world. That the church was going to solve the essential troubles of the world, that the church was the redeemer of the world. So for them, their hope, their redemption is in the church and in the program of the church. And if we just expand our program, we will solve the problems of the world. Now that has largely fallen apart. I mean, the mainline church began to fall apart in the 1960s. And I think the World Council of Churches, which was kind of a federation of all of the the, the major, uh, you know, American and, and European uh, mainline denominations, they really envisioned themselves as a kind of uh, UN that was going to fix the world. That, that's just kind of history now. I mean, it just it's just no longer a reality. Okay? So the... So we have a Greek view, the cyclical view. We have the progressive view, that things are always better tomorrow. But what about the biblical view? Well, the biblical view is a little different from both of them, actually. There are some elements that come into the biblical view from both of them. But the first thing that we see in the biblical view is that human nature... And God's law or God's nature don't change. Okay? People are kind of people, which is why when you're reading the Bible, you always recognize yourself in there. Okay? Like, I, we're no different than King David. We're no different than these other individuals you see in history. The human nature stays the same. It doesn't, it doesn't essentially change over the passage of time. Okay, and so on that view, you might you might think of history as cyclical. People just keep doing the same thing. You know, we just keep making the same mistakes. I mean, we have the same good people, we have the same bad people each generation. So, in some sense, it feels cyclical. If you read uh, the Old Testament histories, the history in the Judges, the history uh, of God's persistence with the people of Israel, you see a kind of cyclical history. You know, God redeems his people and, you know, gives them safety or gives them land or gives them a security. And then they forget God and they start fooling around with other stuff. And then things get bad. And then God restores them again. And then they forget God again and they go back. And there's this cycle of restoration and then fresh sin, and then fresh restoration, okay? So in that sense, there is a kind of a cyclical element to human history. But at the same time, there is a linear nature to biblical history as well. Biblical history has a beginning, 
It has a middle. And it has an end. And all of those points in the history of God's world have already been written. God has already foreordained them. He's, he's already determined the number of days everyone will live. He's determined the number of days that this planet will exist. There is one course to history, and it has a beginning and a middle and an end. I would call this history, rather than progressive, I would call it narrative. God has a story for his people. It has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. Beginning, middle, and end with Israel. Beginning and middle and end with you. Beginning and middle and end with this planet. God has created this world. The other worldviews, by the way, don't envision God creating the world. But if you begin with the understanding that this world is not self-made... A lot of our troubles in our culture today come from the failure to recognize that we don't make ourselves, which is why we're not allowed to remake ourselves. Our bodies do not belong to us. They belong to the one who created our bodies, okay? So God creates the world, and in his creating of the world, he also creates the story that the, that will be... Uh, instantiated in the world. God creates a people. Humans of all of creation are at the pinnacle. The rest of creation serves us. It's here for us. We alone in all of creation are made in God's image. We have creativity, intelligence. We have a moral character and freedom of the will the way God has. Okay, So God has chosen to embed in his creation an image of himself. We, of course, fall from grace. This was the stupid part of our freedom. We mess it up. We get a big chance. We, we mess it up. But God's story is, is that God then redeems his people. Oh, yes, we get to act in history. We get to mess things up. But, you know, God's operating at another plane. And God said, you know what? I'm going to redeem for myself a people. I have a people that I've chosen to myself. You're, you're his people, okay? Not because you're any better than the people who are not here this morning, but because God chose you. Okay, he's got, he's got a story for you. Your story is part of his larger story for this universe. Alright? And, and so he chooses us and he redeems us in grace. Christ, his own son, comes to the earth to die an atoning death for us. Christ's death on the cross pays the divine penalty for our sin. Christ's perfect life in this world becomes credited to our account. There's this weird thing that happens when we're born again. By faith in Jesus Christ, my sin goes to Christ, but Christ's perfect righteousness comes to me. And so at the end of time, when I stand before the judgment seat, I will stand robed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Those of you who know me know that I am not a righteous guy. All right, But I am in Christ. And so when I stand before Almighty God, He's going to look at me and He's going to say, you're beautiful, come on in, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's the record of Christ that's attributed to me by faith in Jesus Christ. At the close of this age, there will be a final summing up. 
There will be a settling of all of the accounts. I think part of what's true in the drive of the progressive view of history is a desire for justice. There's a desire that things that are wrong be set right. Okay? What we have promised in the biblical view is is that there will be, in the end, justice. That wrongs will be set right. That God will redeem His people. That God will give recompense as He, in His divine judgment, sees fit. And at that end of that day, the books are closed on history. The world goes away. And God creates a new heaven and a new earth where his people are going to live forever. Now that's, that's a new start. Okay. That, that's a new start. Okay. History will end and it's going to some, I don't know what we're going to call it then. I don't know if we, we're going to call it history in that new world. Maybe we will. I mean, this is speculative. But there will be a new world and God's redeemed will be with him together with each other living the way God had wanted us to live all of the time. The new world will supersede the old world. The old world is simply going to go, simply go and go away. That's a biblical grand view of history. It's different from the Greek view. It's different from the progressive Marxist view. So, in the biblical view of history, where is my hope and where, where is the source of my redemption? Again, if you are half awake, you know that things are not the way they're supposed to be. In the world, and in my heart, okay? At the end of time, by the way, you are not going to be called to give an account for how other people behaved. God will not ask you about your neighbor. Or your president. He will ask you about yourself. And how you lived. And what you did with your life. Where's your hope of redemption? Are you naturally progressing towards something better? Is your future always better than your past? That's the progressive view. Are you just going to always be stuck in the same thing? Never changing. That's the cyclical Greek view. The biblical view is, you know, our nature doesn't change, but God intervenes in history. Jesus Christ penetrates the created order. He who is outside of the universe comes inside of the universe and interrupts the history. Biblical history is about God being in control of the grand narrative and intruding upon all of our activities. That's why we're redeemed. I'm only here today not because I uh, intelligently read Scripture and came to the conclusion that Jesus is Lord. I'm here today because at some point in my life, God grabbed me by the scruff of my neck against my will and turned me around. All right? When we're born again, we don't do the birthing. When you were born the first time, you didn't do the birthing. All right, And when you're saved, you don't do the saving. God is doing that to you and for you because he knows you and because he loves you. Okay, So that's someone outside stepping into your life. Biblical history is you doing the stuff that you do. You can write that down in your diary every day. 
And then God injecting stuff along the way. All right, I had a conversation last week with one of our people who's in the process of dying. They were already supposed to be dead at this point. Doctors don't know everything. They're still alive. And they're a little bit at loose ends. You know, they've got this time on their hands. They feel okay. They can't do much. But this was a person who was always active in life, always had a project. And they want a project. So she asked me, what should I be doing? And my instruction to her, and it's my instruction to you, is begin to write a history of God's activity in your life. A lot of us, uh, you know, are telling the story of our own lives, of what we've done. We've got our resumes. What about... God's story in your life. Where has God shown up in your life? What's he been doing? Where did it start? When's the first time? When was the first time God intervened in your life? Maybe you were born into a Christian family. Wow. Blessings even before you were born. Okay, You're already way ahead of the game to be born into a Christian family. Some of us here in this room were not born into a Christian family. Some of us here in this room were born into families that were hostile to Christianity, and yet we're here. What did God do along the way? Where did he intervene? Directing you and guiding you. There are people who are not here today who are supposed to be here today. All right? Jesus talks about the good shepherd leaving the 99. You're all, you all are the 99 to go out and find the one. And he goes out and finds the one not because that one is his neighbor's sheep but because that one's his sheep. Okay. Some of Jesus' sheep are still wandering around on the hills and in the valleys around here. We're called to bring them in. I want to turn to the text. Oh, my goodness. Why don't you open up your bulletins with me? Because I want to show you where this intersects. You might be thinking I, this had nothing to do with the Apostle Paul. It actually does. Okay. Okay, you got you got it there in front of you. The ERV, by the way, this is, this still continues to be my favorite current version of the Bible. I think it's written at a fifth grade level, which is just about right. All right. So look with me in verse uh, nineteen. Well, first of all, let me just talk about what's happened before. So there, you know, there's been this very detailed specific account of the things that have happened. A kind of a chronicle of where they've been, who they saw. Real names are mentioned. We stayed at this guy's house. Okay, the guy's house, who's named there, he's a real guy. Okay, this, these are historically verifiable things. But then take a look at verse 19. After greeting them, these are all the elders from the church in Jerusalem, Paul told them point by point, now listen, all that God had used him to do. He doesn't tell them all that he did. This isn't the history of Paul. This is the history of God in the life of Paul. All that God used him to do. Now there are some things I'm guessing in Paul's life that weren't about God at all. 
You know, whether he chose strawberry ice cream or chocolate ice cream. I don't know. That's not a God thing. But there were some things in his life that were God using Paul to do things. And Paul recognizes that God has been operating in him. Are you thinking about your life that way? Where is God using you? What is God doing through you? In what way are you God's... mm, Well, we sometimes use the metaphor of hands and feet. God is the actor... And he works through people. All that God had used him to do. Paul is giving a testimony about what God did through him. It's personal. It's very specific. It's local. Paul's not talking about theology here. He's not talking about God in general. He's saying, well, we did this, and then this happened, and then God did this. Okay? That's called a testimony. We don't have a tradition of testimonies in this congregation, but we probably need it, okay? Because we have not been habituated to thinking about our lives that way. You need to be thinking about your life this way. If you're in Christ, God will be using you to do some things. I don't know what. Maybe you don't even know. Verse 20. When the leaders heard this, they praised God. Let me tell you the most fundamental thing about the universe, about the planet Pluto and about the planet Mars and about the planet Earth. The most fundamental thing about the universe is is that it was created to praise God. That's why it's here. That's what it exists for. Everything else is subsidiary. All right. And so if you have Paul giving a testimony and the leaders in the church praising God, all of a sudden we're seeing now the church doing what the church is designed to do. This is living life the way you were made to live. Bring in a testimony. Praising in my brother's testimony. Brother Paul, praise be to God for what he's been doing to you. Not praise to Paul. We don't care about Paul. Well, we do. We love Paul. But it's about God. Verse 20. Further down in verse 20. Then they said to Paul. Here's the call and response. Paul gives it out. Let me give you my testimony about God. And what do they do? They give another testimony back. Okay, this is a call and response. This is worship. This is what worship looks like. The people of God speaking to the people of God about what God has been doing in their lives. Brothers, you can see that thousands of Jews have become believers. (laughs) I don't know what the population of Jerusalem was or Judea was. Thousands of people were following Jesus at that time from the Jewish community. I mean, we think of the church as being a Gentile thing. Okay, it's still really, really Jewish at this time. They're praising God about his operation in their lives. This is worship. This is what you were made for. If you have been called into the body of Christ, if you've been redeemed, if you've been given faith by the power of the Holy Spirit to cling to Christ as your only hope, then God is working in your life. And... That doesn't mean that you're necessarily historically sensitive to that. And I just want to invite you to be sensitive. What's God doing in my life? How is God working through me? Sometimes you need to ask a brother or a sister, what do you see God doing in my life? I can see it in other people's lives maybe better than they can see it in their own lives, what God's doing through them, with them. 
how he's affecting other people, how he's blessing people around them. Sometimes when you're just doing it yourself, it just feels like, I don't know, I'm just doing what I've always done, or maybe this is the drudgery of my job. Okay? I want us uh, as Christians to be sensitive to what God is using us to do. You, as the redeemed of the Almighty, have a place in the story that God has written. We didn't write the story. We're just playing our part in it. Okay? Different views of history, a cyclical view of history, a progressive view of history, and a narrative view of history. And I invite you to think narratively about your life and about what God is doing in your life. And I invite you to have encouragement in that and hope for your future. Because when you see God at work in your life today, you realize, oh, he does have me in his hand. And you know, I'm feeling really anxious and uncertain about what's going to come tomorrow. And I don't know how I'm going to deal with this. But look how well he's done for me in the past. That's what makes me trust him. That's why we continue to sing God's praises in in, in the company of the saints. It's why we keep remembering what God's mighty deeds in the past. It's why we don't turn our back on history. History is a testimony to God. And it's our hope for the future. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and we adore you and... Uh, we just sing your praises this day. We thank you for Brother Paul and all of those ways that you worked in his life. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to how you're at work in our life this day. And I do pray this, 